the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and it's five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. Here, the Thursday edition of Lifeline, and a pleasant good evening to you. Merry Christmas, and welcome to the program. We are here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Today, we turn a bit of a corner. We're going to spend some time talking about issues that are impacting the body of Christ, the church in general. And this is an interesting trend, a disturbing trend, in fact, that finds its roots in Europe and seems to be now breaking free across all of America. What am I talking about? Well, specifically put, even though most Americans today would consider themselves to be Christian, in fact, fully 70, 75 percent of Americans, when asked, will identify that way, there's something that sort of betrays that sense of affiliation in that the numbers tell us a very different story. The numbers would suggest that, in fact, the percentile of people in America that say they have no religious faith, no belief system whatsoever, has risen from just 6% back in 1991 to fully 25% today, and most alarmingly, a major increase that amongst millennials, it's almost 39%. Today in America, less than 20% of all Americans attend church on a regular basis. Now, that, of course, excludes the uh, twice-a-year folks that show up at uh, Easter and will be at uh, just about two weeks from today at church again for the second time in the year. What does all this mean? At the end of the day, as we see the decline in active church attendance and a morphine of the way in which the church used to be a vital part of community life in America, that means that roughly, you ready for it? Between six and 10,000 churches a year are dying. Attendance declining. So his giving, of course, to the point where the percentage of charity donations going to religious institutions is now at an all-time low. As I mentioned, this actually finds its roots, this phenomenon, this disturbing trend in Europe, only to a much greater scale. In fact, over there, if you see a church, it's more likely today to be considered more of a museum than an active house of worship. Hundreds of churches in Europe today, in fact, have been transformed into Islamic mosques, this generating, of course, a great degree of controversy amongst believers. Church attendance is simply not as important to Americans, apparently, as it once was. In the old days, churches were central hubs where you got to know your neighbors, important events were commemorated there. Today, though, this major paradigm shift seems that we found other means of finding community, such as the Internet, Facebook, places of that sort. Ironically, in 1776, at the founding of our nation, approximately 98% of the Uh, The colonists were Protestants. The remaining 1.9% were Roman Catholics. What does that mean? That means that not only did virtually every single American identify as a Christian, but they all attended church regularly. Now our society is moving in a very rapidly different and opposite direction, 
Many believe that this has tremendous implications not only for the future of the church in America, but the future of America. Joining me tonight in studio to discuss this important topic is Dr. Rick Durst. He is a Ph.D. in historical theology from Golden Gate Seminary. In fact, he is now director of the San Francisco Bay Area campus of Gateway Seminary, beautiful brand-new campus um, in the Fremont area. He's also currently serving as interim pastor at Petaluma Baptist Church. He's the author of a number of best-selling books, including 100 Blunders in Church History and <clears throat> Reordering the Trinity. Dr. Durst, good to see you again. Thank you so much, Craig, for inviting me. It has to be particularly troubling for someone in your position who has invested a lifetime in not only leading the church as a pastor, but also helping to to encourage and develop new leaders, train and equip new pastors to hear these statistics and to begin to realize that there is an alarming trend here that you almost feel as if, gee, is, is the church going the way of the horse and buggy? Uh, has the community that we once found in the local congregation been replaced by something called the Internet? And, and if so, what does all of this mean, not only in terms of the future of the church, but most importantly in terms of the future of our nation and what's happening, the, the, the spiritual implications of all of this morally and theologically? That's a big, broad question. I'm glad to dig into it uh, with you. Um, I was in Germany in the 90s, and I remember being introduced to this phenomenon of beautiful, big, large church buildings with no people. In one case in Bonn, you could see this incredible front facade, but if you drove around the back, there was like just a little box, like a garage attached to that facade because no one came. And so you do have those huge buildings. Now, I was recently in France, and it's interesting, even though France declares itself to be um, a secular uh, entity, um, they still take tax money to pay for the Catholic church buildings, no Protestant buildings, the Catholic church buildings, as cultural monuments. Mm. So there's a way of supporting Catholicism sort of backhanded, but also retaining that um, full salute to secularity. Um, Quebec, I don't know if you've been to Quebec, Canada, but it was intentionally desacredized, um, where the Catholic Church in particular provided health care services, orphanages. All of that was taken over after World War II intentionally by the government so that the churches were pushed out of any of that kind of work. And so uh, Quebec has churches, but as you said, Many of them are places of music for concerts and other things. Uh, but it's not just in Canada. It's also here in the U.S. I was a part of a church in 1978 uh, in Mill Valley. And um, at, I later moved on as a youth pastor to Santa Rosa. And in Mill Valley, I discovered that they had decided to sell that church property, which, you know, church property is very valuable, very hard to get, and they sold it to an Islamic study center. Mm. So there you have, in the shadow of where our seminary used to be, uh, the death of a church and the birth of an Islamic center. What's interesting about this, this trend is some might conclude, even from the results of this survey, the, the large increase in people that identify as nuns 
meaning no religious affiliation whatsoever. And, and one, I think, might perhaps erroneously conclude that that means that there is a lessening interest in anything spiritual whatsoever. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think what's happening is we've seen a paradigm shift where heretofore you would be raised in a Christian home, you would go through uh, your particular church's denominational catechism, you attended church, you got married there, you baptized your kids there, and then those kids were sent off to church, and so it went for generation after generation. Today there seems to be a disconnect, and people seem to move into alternative forms of spirituality, uh, everything from uh, paganism to outright cults, and I would include in that list places like uh, Church of Scientology, Islam, to be sure, although a lot of that I think is more growth from, from um, uh, immigration than anything else. So it isn't to say that there's necessarily a difference deep down from a theological standpoint in man's need to be connected with the Creator. It's just that how we go about satisfying that need or our understanding of how to fulfill that need is changing, but changing not for the good. I agree with you. People are just as hungry for the Lord as they've ever been. We are made to have fellowship with God, but that hole can be filled artificially with a lot of things. And we live in a consumer-driven, secular world that some people want to call post-Christian. And um, what that means is uh, the church, which some would say used to occupy a privileged position in American culture, is now moving further and further out to the margins. So what that means is, for some of these nuns and others, that to identify yourself as a Christian makes you suspect in that secular culture. Has this marginalization, in your opinion, Dr. Durst, come because we have been infiltrated or because we've been slowly surrendering territory? Um, I'd say both. And I think that many of us as Christians in America have bought into, as David Platt would say, the American dream, and somehow we've exalted our desire for houses and things up to an equal level with our desire for the kingdom of God. And the moment you each that becomes equal, you, you're plunging your life into idolatry. And the spirit of Christ is going to war with you about that. And so I think um, we have to rethink what the American dream really is and what the kingdom of God dream is for America. And I think they're two separate things. And, and perhaps that, that, that lust, that thirst for uh, material possessions, which has been so much driven by our society, our culture. I mean, this is not to, to cap on capitalism by any means, but to suggest that sometimes we have shifted the yardstick where heretofore many men in the pulpit who counted highly the value of discipleship, and growing a church not only wide but deep, today seems, and this is, again, I want to put the disclaimer up front, not meant to be a blanket accusation against the church in general, but an alarming percentage of it that would maybe fit in that so-called emergent church category where the thirst and lust after materialism that has driven our personal lives is now beginning to influence our spiritual lives, so much so that some say it's more about how big the building is, how fat the coffers are, how many people show up to church on Sunday than just how mature 
or successful the church is in terms of its its spiritual breadth and depth, and and therefore, in an effort to not scare anybody off or offend anybody, a watering down of the gospel message has taken place, so that preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, separation from God, the realities of hell, sort of the Billy Sunday hellfire and brimstone, which uh, some people immediately hear that and go, oh my good, you can't do that. People will be offended. Nobody will show up to church. Well, yes, maybe nobody will show up to church, but neither will anybody get saved if you're not teaching the realities of what the gospel is. And I, and I wonder if part of the problem here is in so much a desire to grow it bigger and stronger and better than everybody else, almost in that business-like competition, that some pastors, some churches, some congregations have succumbed to the secular advance where they're willing to make sacrifices, they're willing to make compromise in areas that really has as a result, undermine the effectiveness of the gospel of Christ, not because the gospel is ineffective, but because we've watered down its teaching. I think we always fight against that. Um, I, I, you made me think about Tom Rainer's book, The High Expectation Churches. In many churches, we've been lowering the expectations as Christians in discipleship uh, to a level that we want to be acceptable versus... Um, raising up the expectations. And it turns out in the study of the research that Tom Rainer and his team did, people like going to high-expectation churches. Now, think about this. Millennials are the ones that we call slackers because they're slacking off church or slacking off this, but they're the ones who invented extreme games. I think the slackers are slacking because they're waiting for something to give extremely to. And if we will raise our expectations, we'll raise up our doctrinal standards, I think they will meet those standards and exceed them. Now, the problem is going to be to let them loose with the gospel means that those of us of older generations are going to have to let them serve Christ and worship Christ in ways that maybe feel uncomfortable to us, but are exactly what would attract our grandchildren to come to church. There are some people listening right now that would say that have been, you know, lifelong active members in the church, that if we suggested next week we're taking all the pews out, we're removing all the stained glass, we've sold the organ and the piano off, um, in fact, we're going to just get rid of the building altogether, and we're going to select a couple of members' homes, and we're going to gather there, maybe with even the curtains drawn, and do fellowship there, people would be appalled at that notion. You can't, that's not church. Are you out of your mind? But in fact, that is the very church that began as the church. And that is the model of the church that was there certainly during the the anti-Nicene period. um, And and I think was, 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 you know, kind of the most successful model. I don't know that even as as we, we speak of houses of worship, that even God himself had the notion of this big labyrinth building as opposed to a big labyrinth called the body of Christ. Yeah, when the scripture uses church, it's not talking about a building. It's Mm -hmm. talking about the the body, the temple of the living God, which is us, gathered together in Christ's name to worship, to minister to one another, to care for the world. Uh, I agree with that. And we've gotten into our worldviews as Christians sort of the American dream of a big house, well, a big building. And we've succumbed to the idea that the bigger your building, the bigger your God must be, mm-hmm. which is really, honestly, 
more Muslim than Christian. Is there a sense, too, that maybe amongst millennials, uh, millennials in particular, that some of this rings hollow in that they've looked at our generation, the baby boomers, that came off of World War II, or our parents certainly did, and there was a tremendous uh, wanting to, to put everything of the Great Depression, World War I, World War II behind, and enjoy life, buy more cars, add bigger houses, et cetera, et cetera, very materialistic driven, and maybe as they've watched us have had a sense that some of that seems to ring hollow. And I ask that question because if you look at the central core of the gospel message, it has in it certainly reconciliation, restoration of relationship with God, discipleship that goes to the key of growing the faith in individual believers as they grow closer to the Lord and then multiplying, uh, certainly, as, as they share their faith with others, and is very world-changing centric. And oddly enough, a lot of millennials today have a desire at changing the world. I mean, let's face it, much of the so-called grain movement and save the planet and save the whales, et cetera, et cetera, are usually driven by millennials. They tend to want to leave their mark in the world. So it isn't as if we have completely scuttled the notion of changing things. It's just that how they're going about changing things has changed. We're less focused on changing each other in terms of reaching someone for Christ than we are perhaps in changing the physical planet. So maybe there can be some hope in that, that it's just a matter maybe at at a level of reshifting some of the focus, the desire to, to leave an influence, to, to, to leave things better, still resides with the current generation. It's just as perhaps misplaced because they've looked at some of what they perceive to be hollowness in the previous generation and said, I don't want that. Yeah. If there is a, a transition from modernity to postmodernity, part of that has to be the idea of um, progression and positiveness with reference to humanity in modernity that reason can solve every problem well we don't believe that as much anymore it's true and in post-modernity basically looking at the earth saying good planets are hard to find Mm -hmm. and we need to take care of this earth if it's going to take care of us even to the place where uh maybe humanity doesn't need to continue in the movie avatar the only human beings that survive are either kicked off the planet, they're killed, or they have to become a different species. Mm-hmm. And so it's a post-humanity kind of thing. Well, millennials, they value the planet. Now, here's what's happened in my mind. We who are of an older generation uh, sharing Christ in modernity, we have unintentionally, I'll say, uh, clipped out passages in Scripture. Just an example. In 2 Corinthians seven fourteen. Um, when God answers the prayer of dedication of the temple of Solomon. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I think we edit those last words out when really the Scripture always says when humanity sins, creation suffers. Mm -hmm. When humanity repents and gets right with God, Creation is healed. We're somehow in God's creation linked in solidarity. And, you know, in in Romans chapter 8, verse 21 to 23, uh, all of creation is groaning until the sons and daughters of light are revealed. 
So creation is suffering, waiting for Christ to come back just as much as we who are believers in Christ. It would, be, would it be fair to say that it's almost the, the domino effect of man's fallen condition in that sin not only impacted our relationship with God from the very beginning by offending him, by going against the one prohibition that he had set forth, but then along with that, in this now new sinful, depraved state, that our sense of the preciousness of the gift of even the planet. And, and, and I, you know, some listeners are going to say, oh, boy, he's gone off the, the deep end here now. No, that even the sense of, of appreciating the gift of what we have given that, that allows us to sustain physical life, we've kind of taken for granted. Has it suffered also from sin? Yes. And I think that when we look at, you know, for me, I, I read the Psalms like Psalm 104 and all of creation is, is wanting to praise God. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the trees point the trees, up. The trees point out. They the, point And up. the rocks will cry out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we can walk in that world. And when our hearts are pure, we see God everywhere. And that's how he wants us to be. Um, and if we will understand that with, you know, uh, there, there's a book that says that uh, how to save nature without worshiping it, that nature is created like we're created. We're created to worship. It's created to give glory to God. We need to give glory to God, you know, with that. Um, and I think as we recover that notion in our discipleship, um, I think you raised the issue just really, really well. I think we've forgotten to count what counts with Christ. Mm-hmm. We're counting money or we're counting people in the pews. What's Christ counting? He's counting commitment to him. He's counting those that seek the kingdom of God first. That's what he's counting. Sermon on the Mount. What's he counting? How do we handle our anger? Um, how do we handle our mental, emotional lives with reference to men and women? How do we sort that out biblically? Um, are we drilling down into scripture and living according to scripture? That's what counts with Christ. All right. That's what we should make count in our church more than anything else. How are you following Christ today? You know, and you know, a, a part of that for me is years ago in the L.A. Unified School District, they discovered that they had a number of high school graduates who couldn't read. So what they made a decision was, if you graduated from any L.A. school district high school and you couldn't read, that you could sue the district and the district would pay for you to go to community college to get the, the three R's, so to speak. I think in some ways... If people have been in our churches for two years and they don't know how to hear God's voice through reading Scripture for themselves, they don't know how to talk to God in prayer, they don't know how to give, they don't know how to share how they came to Christ with others or bring them to Christ, just the basics of being a thriving believer on a daily basis, they probably ought to sue us and we have to give their tithe back. Well, that, that certainly is the discipleship disconnect, isn't it? Because what you're describing is, is, is a, 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 in my mind, a complete, utter lack of discipleship. And, and I have to wonder, too, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but I have to wonder, too, if part of the bigger issue at play here, too, is that we have tended, and I think this in part is because there's been political creep into the church and by that, I mean that we have, I think, growing frustrated with what we see happening in the world around us, sought a multiplicity of answers, including saying, well, if we can't get an improvement on our knees, we'll see if we can get improvement in the State House or in the White House or in Washington, D.C. Now, disclaimer, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved. This is self-governance. We absolutely, I believe, have an obligation to have our vote and our voice counted. 
That said, there's been, in my mind, a tendency toward, as we sort of analyze what's, what's been happening with the church, say, well, evil's the problem. There's just too much evil out there. But we see now outside, folks are driving, it's dark out. When you get home, you come into a dark house, perhaps, what do you say? Is the first thing that comes to your mind, there's too much dark in here? No, you say, we need to turn on the light. I wonder if part of the problem really here is that our emphasis has been on trying to ascertain or or somehow corner, determine what it is, and then corner the darkness instead of saying what's really at play here is that there needs to be a lot more light, which then makes a shift from somehow the big bad devil being all responsible to the church having to take some level of responsibility, both in the pulpit and in the pews. And then I wonder, going back to that Second Chronicles 7.14, if there's not been some misapplication of that, because it starts by saying, if my people. Now, oftentimes I've heard that quoted, and then from there it's, now we're all going to pray for all the sinners out there. That's right. If these evil sinners will just turn from their wicked ways, God's going to heal our nation. That passage, as I read it, directed toward the church. I, I like that very much. The scripture talks about judgment beginning with the household of God. And we need to ask ourselves, when, the, when is the last time I practiced reconciliation? When was the last time I practiced sacrificial giving? When was the last time I prayed for more than, you know, just a quick grace over prayer? I mean, I prayed something through so till I knew what God's will was for me, or I knew God had heard my my voice in that. When is the last time I worshiped with some people till I really sang to the Lord, mm-hmm. as Francis Chan likes to talk about, uh, singing right to him. Uh, those are all experiences of the believer that makes us attractive and, in a sense, transformative to the culture. We look at some of the stats that we've discussed here so far and say, somebody needs to do something about this, and it's easy to wag our fingers and make that pronouncement. And I have to wonder, as God is in heaven looking down, if he's not saying, yeah, somebody does need to do something about this, and the church is the somebody, and you've been empowered with my word and with my spirit. So what's your excuse? Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Dr. Rick Dirk is with us tonight in studio, Ph.D. in historical theology. He is now, as we mentioned, the director of the uh, Bay Area campus of Gateway Seminary. And uh, it's a beautiful brand-new campus. If you're looking for a place to uh, further your study in the pastoral ministry, um, certainly you want to check him out online at gs.edu. Easy to remember. Think of Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. And you can make arrangements to come and uh, tour the beautiful campus and to find out what Gateway Seminary has to offer you. All right, this time out, we'll get you updated here on some traffic. We're way behind, I know, and I don't apologize, right? It's not my fault anyway. It's the traffic. It's the guy ahead of you. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael Bennett's all yours. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation. Dr. Rick Durst is with us today in studio. We're talking about this alarming new trend. And I tell you, it's an article that would capture anybody's attention. The title, between 6,000 and 10,000 churches in the United States are dying each year. Wow. Now, of course, we can report the bad news and leave it there. Or we can say that there is another side to this story. And let's spend some time talking about this Dr. Durst, because um, part of this requires thinking outside of the box, 
part of this requires surrendering, I think perhaps not to what has necessarily or historically been in our mind, our model of how church ought to be done, but rather how the Word says it. Case in point, in China, for a long time, there was an attempt to try and um, mold the church. This is pre-communist revolution, mold the church into looking like the church in the West. And in some big cities like Beijing, you can find churches that look very distinctly like a Southern Baptist church. And their church order in in the, uh, the service to this day is very Western in style. And yet you're not in the West. We've tried to sometimes, I think, square peg, round hole, force church to be what our priest conceived notion says it should be, instead of saying, you know, the paradigm that we have is in the book of Acts, and the first century church teaches us what has been historically the most effective method of propagating the faith and building a strong church, um, big C, as the body of Christ. So maybe the big challenge here is some surrendering? Yes, and that's painful, and it's frightening, and it's scary, and I think the older you are, the harder change can be. I think change is a spiritual discipline that you have to acquire with biblical wisdom and with a community that learns how to change together. Why shouldn't there be suffering in following Christ? And part of that suffering is is change. And it's almost as if change or die. Um, there are a number of, well, let me say two things about, is the church dying? No. The church can't die. Because Christ is in charge of it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is the church dying? Yes. Meaning that there are churches who are going out of business. Uh, There's no one there. Uh, The church has seven members and all of them are 75 years of age and older. Uh, Maybe they have bills. Maybe they don't. But they don't have the energy to sustain what's necessary to to even keep the lights on or keep it cleaned. So what's going to happen with that property, especially if it's in the Bay Area? It's fabulously viable, valuable, and people are going to see that, and they're going to try to get it. Or uh, some of these churches are saying, okay, I belong to an association of churches. If I give this property to them, they can rethink what's the value of this property and what's the best kind of ministry to come in there. Maybe it's a different ethnic ministry. Maybe it's a different style of ministry. There's a church in South San Jose where the pastor looked ahead and what he saw was not good. So he called another church that was just vibrant and exploding. You know, it's only 10 years old and it's up to above 2,000 now. And he said, we would like to give our church to you. No conditions whatsoever. Could you do here what you did there? And that church made sure that you agree. Everything will be ours. Assets and bills. Everything will be ours. We'll make that, those moves. And they liked the attitude of that pastor so much they kept him. And they've restarted that church, and it's back up to 300 now. And it's just going forward. That was very, very difficult to do, to give up control like that. It's like when you're older, and all of a sudden you realize it's time to go to assisted living or some other dramatic change. That's very, very difficult just went that through that with my parents. And it's difficult for the parents. It's difficult for us. But in order for them to have a good life, it's got to happen. So I think uh, believers in the fellow, well, in the church where I'm a member, uh, very recently, 
a church about, you know, maybe eight miles away decided they're going to die all their, unless they do something dramatic, and they decided to give themselves to us and asking us to pray and help them restart that with the younger generation. They had lost their capacity to reach the youngers. They just had the olders. And the courage of that leadership to do that is amazing. And we accepted that group. And now we're positioning ourselves in 2019 to replant that, restart that church, uh, because it's in a vital place in the community. It's in a great location. It just needs um, a new ethos, pathos, a new narrative to speak into that community. And, you know, Christ is always attractive. What an amazing opportunity for a church plant. We talked a little bit about this off the air. Yes. Um, that there is a major trend taking place, uh, particularly in the inner cities, where people recognize that there is sort of this magnet that's been turned back on. I mean, look what's happened in San Francisco. I mean, housing and, and cost of li- living aside, there were dying communities, dying sections of San Francisco that have been completely revitalized again. People like to be able to walk out their door and there they can do the, you know, go to the coffee shop, go pick up some groceries. It's all right there. For many of these older churches that are in those suburban and urban areas that could then be allowed to be a part of a new church plant, it doesn't mean the old congregation goes away, but that means a new life gets breathed into it. Uh, That certainly can be, I think, a, a major paradigm shift that would allow a church sort of a second lease on life. There's something else, too, I want to ask you about, and that is this sense of community, this notion that we do the younger generation does community differently than than baby boomers or our parents did they find a lot of community online facebook uh, all of that and and yet for older folks it was going to church on sunday and that became our our social network we went to events at the church we fellowshiped there on sunday morning we had a lot of connection going on there as we've seen that begin to sort of peel peel or fall away I'm wondering if rethinking the role that the church can play in community needs to change, too. For example, you've got a church congregation. The building will seat 500. 30 people show up Sunday morning. You have a bevy of classrooms. You've got 15 Sunday school classrooms that all sit idle. You hold adult Sunday school in the main sanctuary. What if those classrooms could be used for um, everything from uh, new parenting classes to maybe providing facilities for the local AA group or um, other organizations that could come alongside, could be contributory to the overall bigger sense of ministry for that church? This church still focuses on evangelism, discipleship, but some of these ancillary support ministries could benefit from access to the property. Now, all of a sudden, there's a whole new life breathed into that property. Rooms that have been vacant for decades now, all of a sudden, are teeming with life. Yeah, I think when those kind of people come onto the property and they feel like it's, it's their home now, too. I have my AA or my NA meeting. Um, I have a support group that I go to. One church I know had a network for people looking for jobs. And it was fantastic to see all these people come. They would always have somebody come who would speak into the issue of building resumes, making connections, how to follow up on things. And you saw people getting hired. But there was a, there was a hope in the room and a help in the room 
uh, with reference to anxiety and concerns when you're without work. So the church has a resource. God always wants to make maximum availability, of ma- you know, make, maximize those resources. You can do that. Other churches I've seen to say, look, here's a, a new culture that's in the neighborhood. Here's a new people group, an ethnic group. Uh, could we design some sort of agreement so they can we can have worship in Korean, worship in Mandarin, worship in uh, Tagalog? Or, and so, uh, well, there's a church in Fremont that has worship every Sunday morning in seven different languages. Wow. And it's just fantastic. And this is not a weak church in the English service. It's strong there, but they've decided that's part of our calling. And they're always sending out groups to plant. So they're, they don't see it just as gathering, but they see it also as gathering. And well, the Holy Spirit is honoring that. Moreover, I mean, historically, churches looked like the community in which they were planted. The problem is the community has changed, but the church has not. Exactly. And we sometimes just want to hang on for dear life. We feel as if somehow we're surrendering something, uh, as opposed to saying, no, we're passing the torch to a younger generation, albeit maybe a generation that looks different, thinks different than we do, but the next generation nevertheless. Well, and if, if attendance at seminary is a predictor of what God is up to, in other words, he's calling out the people he wants to use in this generation to plant churches, to revitalize churches. What we're seeing at, at the Fremont campus of Gateway Seminary is maybe 30% are Caucasian and all of the rest are of ethnicities, Hispanic, African-American. Uh, we have Mongolian students. We have our first Egyptian student. Uh, so these are people who are going to be leading what God is up to in the Bay Area. Now, where are those leaders going to find positions and callings? You have to make space for that. And so I think some amazing things are going to happen in the Bay Area going forward. It won't, you know, one of the things I think about in terms of the change in the culture is that nowadays, well, it's it's been this way for some time in the Bay Area, but in the rest of uh, California as well, um, coming out for Christ is not going to be a wise career move. (laughs) <laughs> coming out for Christ is going to be coming out for Christ, and it may come with a cost, the cost of discipleship, uh, the cost of people looking with suspicion. Uh, have you joined a cult? You know, is that, is that what this means? Because they don't have categories of healthy church that produce wonderful persons to employ, wonderful persons to have in your neighborhood. What I really hope is that we will so walk in Christ that when we move into a neighborhood, the value of homes there goes up. The value, the, the uh, school scores go up because of the way we're living for the Lord there. And, you know, the, the irony, it, it reminds me of a, of a little quip, a little phrase. Um, speaking of non-believers, they say, well, how come this big group here uh, are all non-believers? Well, half of them are non-believers because they've never met a believer, and the other half are non-believers because they have met one. So to think about the way in which we as the church present ourselves, and equally, I think, and you, you mentioned something that, you know, your, 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 expert of, your, your field of expertise is historical theology. So in the historical sense, in the very biblical sense, this notion of being in a place that is fundamentally hostile toward who we are, most importantly, who we serve, 
should not, while it might feel foreign to many Western believers, should not at all feel foreign. In fact, it should be considered part of normative Christianity. And what did Jesus say? You will be persecuted for my namesake. And ironically, in all of the places where you see some of the most phenomenal church growth, coincidentally, or maybe not, has the highest degree of persecution. The cards, so to speak, stack the most against the church. And yet there, the church thrives because it's all about the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. It's not about me, about my building, about my program. And so there may be some interesting times ahead for the church, maybe some troubling times ahead for the church. But isn't it interesting to know that Scripture talks about both a falling away and a huge harvest at the same time? Yeah, I, I agree. And when I read uh, the book of Revelation or Matthew 24, Mark 13, you know, Christ is coming back. We have to be alert but not alarmed. What's the world going to be like as we roll towards that second coming? And who knows how close we are or not. But those are times when Christians have to stand really true and be loving and be kind, not be angry, not be afraid. We're trusting Christ. And we may have to, you know, we will have to sacrifice. Let's just say that. And the mission-mindedness, the mission-spiritedness of these churches that are growing, their sense is we will go where God sends anytime, anywhere. And they bring that spirit back after they've had that missionary experience. Pretty exciting. Should we be off-put? Some people would read this headline, between six and 10,000 churches in the U.S. dying each year and go, wow, I'm heading for the hills, I'm ducking for cover, this is all bad news. Is this necessarily bad news? What does this mean? What do we make of it? It's part of the news, but it's not all of the news. Okay. There's a church in Phoenix, Arizona, that is on schedule to baptize six or 700 believers this year just this year. Wow. And many of those are from the university. Uh, and that's happening all over. We're so glad we've moved here to Fremont because I can look in every direction and find Baptist churches, evangelical churches that are thriving. Now, under those wings, I also see churches that are dying and suffering and being faithful, but just sputtering along. And in some cases, those thriving churches are making covenants with those struggling churches uh, either by video venue or by taking them over, you know, by agreement, not a hostile takeover, but a friendly takeover. And I see a lot of hope for that. The question is, is there enough courage and leadership in those churches to say, okay, if we keep on this track, we got about five more years before we're out of business. Mm -hmm. Let's take what strength we have now and invest it wisely in some change. Now, you're going to lose some people in a decision like that, but... The gains for the kingdom are enormous. Does that really ultimately need to be our primary focus in so much as it's easy for the church to be focusing inward? Self-preservation. We're doing it this way because we've done it always. We've always done it this way. We can't possibly turn this. This has been a Baptist church. My father, you know, my grandfather was you know, one of the founding members. We can't possibly. And yet, is it the need to really begin to realize that this is not about me, it's about him. This is not about us, it's about those on the outside that are perishing because they do not know Christ. And that maybe there is part of the issue here is a lack of a sense of urgency when it comes to the evangel. 
I like that. I remember one time asking a church where I was pastor, what could we change that we can't change? Some things you can't change. You can't change the gospel. You can't change those eternal truths that are in Scripture. You can't change that. But you could change the music style. You could change the time of worship. You can change pews to chairs. You could change those things. What would you be willing to change that we can change so that next week your grandchildren are happily sitting next to you? It's about that next generation hearing and receiving the gospel and not pushing them away because in order for them to come, they have to step into a foreign culture. Well, let's make it their culture in that in a proper sense mm-hmm. um, so that they feel welcome, intrigued, and excited. So there should there, there 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 should not be then this sense of being, this sense of paralysis because of fear of the unknown because the known entity here is the timeless truth of the gospel as you just articulated. What may be foreign or unknown to people is take the pews out. Those are oak pews. <laughs> well, a lot of people feel that's a little stuffy, and we could turn this church into a multi-purpose room where the kids can do. Musical performances and other things can go on inside of the very room that we use as the sanctuary, the house of worship on Sunday, could form or serve another purpose on Saturday that all feeds into meeting the needs of that local community and those young people. So maybe a big part of this is just simply fear of change, the fear of the unknown. I remember hearing there was a church that did that. They did so much community service. They basically said, no child within five miles of our church is going to get to the third grade without being able to read. And they put tutors everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that between the second and third grade, anybody who was struggling falling behind because you read to learn. And so they, they had so many things going on like that, that, you know, some, somebody made a motion or a notion that, you know, really churches don't pay any taxes. We, we should make them taxable. We should... They're a, a parasite on the community. Killer of the California state legislature must have come up with that idea. <laughs> well, um, somebody said, look, I'll tell you this. If that church wasn't here, we'd have to raise taxes to get those kind of services done. Mm-hmm. And they do it for free, and they do it better than we could do it if we paid for it. I wonder how many churches today that are on that borderline that have an older congregation an older congregation that is comprised of retired business executives, retired doctors, retired nurses, retired mothers, retired fathers, all of whom could volunteer some time, could have a renewed sense of purpose in life by providing mentoring, be it remedial reading skills for a child that needs it, to the kid who is without a father, who just needs somebody to be willing to knock around a baseball occasionally, and how you could bring a whole army of skilled, trained experts in so many fields that are just sitting there sort of, you know, atrophying and, you know, waiting for the, the grim reapers to show up, so to speak that could find renewed purpose in life and, and suddenly give new vitalization to a local church as well. I agree with that totally. Some of the people that are showing up at the seminary are a lot older than you would expect, and they are those kind of retired people who have means and have health and want to sharpen their skills to a fine edge and get back into the volunteer work mm-hmm. in their church. And I love that. 
I've got several PhDs in my theology class that meets on Saturdays, and they're wanting to take those skill sets, add theology perspectives to it, and go back into their church to serve. I love that. It, it, some great ideas. And, and I think, if anything, in the course of our conversation tonight, we've learned that while there are aspects of the headlines that can be very discouraging, uh, if you peel back the layers, you begin to realize that with some creativity and willingness to reorder our priorities, there is as much to be encouraged about as you might on the surface feel there's as much to be discouraged about. Yeah, it's like Jesus said. My father is still working, and I am still working. The well, Lord's at work. And again, you know, that 30,000-foot-high viewpoint on all of this, that while some of these issues might be besetting the church in the West, Europe, now here in America, if we can recognize it and come up with a plan to respond to it, and the plan, quite frankly, is not all that complicated. I, I would suggest you start in the book of Acts. That's a good place to get an idea how all that works. Um, you can simply take that model, breathe new life into it, and in doing so, breathe new life into the church. You know, if anything, maybe the danger here is to be careful that uh, we have to let the Holy Spirit do the work. And there's always the fear that we're going to try to come up with plots and procedures and programs as a substitute for, do you agree that, that first and foremost, while there's a lot that we can be doing, number one job is now, has been, and always should be dissemination of the gospel and discipleship, both at the, the pulpit level and at the pew level? Absolutely. In fact, in church history, it's not the pulpits or the missionaries or the apostles who spread the gospel. It was the pew people. And they were called by the Romans stubborn because they wouldn't stop sharing the gospel and caring for people. Um, the last verse in the book of Acts, I've been thinking about it a lot. It talks about Paul being in chains, he's under house arrest, and the gospel is unhindered. That sounds like a paradox. It sounds like it can't be true. But I think every person who's listening probably is, knows the chains that are holding them in place and preventing them. I'm saying that as we humble ourselves before the Lord, despite the chains, the gospel will go forward through us. God will create a way for the gospel to go forward and went all the way into um, the, the Roman Caesar's household. You know, back to my example of what's happening in communist China today. The gospel is growing like wildfire. Even the government begrudgingly admits that there could be as many as 10,000 people a day that surrender to Jesus Christ in a very pure fashion. This is not cultural Christianity. This is rubber meets the road. I could lose my life over this Christianity. You look at those kinds of numbers and you say, well, this is absent seminaries and uh, Christian radio stations like KFAX and Bible bookstores and, uh, you know, big evangelistic crusades, absent all of that. So the gospel is not flourishing because of, but rather in spite of, and in doing so gives full, I think, credit and ought to give renewed encouragement to the church that the power of God's word to change lives is as, as effective and effectual today as it was in the very beginning, and will continue to do so, provided that we're willing to be vessels surrendered to him and 
begin to not see change as something fearful, but rather something that we should embrace, because change can usher in the, the next wave of the gospel in the United States. Yeah, I think what you said about the book of Acts is true. It's all about change. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, taking risks, going to new places, raising up new leaders, change. And change is not our enemy. It's, it's the field we play on and move on. We'll talk more about the topic. We want to thank Dr. Rick Durst for being with us tonight. Of course, he is the director of the Bay Area campus of Gateway Seminary. If you'd like to get more information, by the way, you can contact them online at gs.edu. Think Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. A little lull here for the holidays, then back into full swing after the first of the year. If folks want to come and say, gee, I didn't know you've got a brand new campus. That's exciting. Can I come take a tour, maybe sit in a couple of classes? I'm, I'm interested. Can I find out more? If you are down Fremont Way, get on Mission Boulevard and come by. A big sign on the front of the building, put the brakes on, come in, and I'll give you a grand tour. We'd love to have you. Information again on the web at gs.edu. Our thanks to Dr. Rick Durst for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. 603, let's get caught up on some traffic here, and we'll be back with more after an update on some headline news. Right now, though, the update with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.